0: Hey, wine lovers. As you probably know, First Bottle Wines has been sponsoring the show for a while now. I use First Bottle to find all the best deals on really high quality wines. They're carefully curated, so you always know you're gonna get a great bottle. They've got all your favorites, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, Sparkling, whatever you love. So go to firstbottlewines.com right now and use my code goldenwestpod. That's Golden West P-O-D. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and you'll have wine show up on your doorstep as soon as you know it. You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, Maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store. And I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, GOLDENWEST. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today on the show, we have Rebecca Weinberg. Rebecca is the winemaker at Quintessa. She previously worked as the assistant winemaker for Rudd, among other roles in Oregon, New Zealand, and more. She co-owns a label, Post and Vine, which focuses on small historical vineyards featuring unique varietals like Carignan and Old Vine Zinfandel. She graduated with a Master's in Viticulture and Enology from UC Davis. Enjoy my conversation with Rebecca. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Ryan.
0: Well, it's great having you here. So I think the first thing to do before we get into wine, before we get into Quintessa, is let's go into a little bit
1: about your background. Yeah, my story of how I became a winemaker um, is well, I guess everyone's story is is unusual or unique. I have no family connection to the wine business, even though my last name is Weinberg. I grew up on the East Coast in Washington, D.C., and I was a little kid, always very interested in science. I thought I would become a uh, professor, a research biologist. As a little kid, I had a little chemistry set in the basement. And I got the idea of becoming a winemaker when I was only 16 years old on a family vacation to California where we did a day trip up to Napa Valley. And on this trip on this tours I got a glimpse into the magic of winemaking and how it's a combination of art and science and would allow me to be connected to a product and uh, seasons and a property. And I got the idea that I could be a winemaker. And so I went off to school still with no idea of how to make that happen. And I got my undergraduate degree in chemistry and biology and was lucky enough to have a mentor in my physical chemistry professor who I told about my interest in wine and he is, it interested in wine as well and so he helped me figure out how to make it a reality and he told me I should go after graduation work a harvest in California and then go to UC Davis and get a master's degree in viticulture and enology and so that's exactly what I did. I moved out to California right after college and went uh, to work a harvest at Jekyll Vineyards in Monterey County where I definitely got the uh, job or got a second look at the job because my last name is Weinberg. And so that helped, that did help there. I went to UC Davis, got my master's degree in viticulture and enology, and I did my research uh, on the effects of winemaking techniques on phenolics. So I was always very interested in Cabernet Sauvignon and, and how the processes in the winery can affect, change, amplify the character of the grapes. Um. Then I went to Italy, worked harvest at Ornolaia, uh, which is in Tuscany, and came back to California, worked in Napa Valley at Rudd. Um, I've worked in Oregon, in um, New Zealand, and I have been mainly in Napa Valley since 2003.
0: Wow, you have experience from all over, which we're going to get into a little bit, but Do you remember any of the wineries or places you visited on that trip to Napa with your family at the time?
1: Oh, yes. It was Robert Mondavi. Um, So this would have Mm -hmm. been in the early 1990s. And I remember being hiding kind of my family um, in the back of the tour groups that I was allowed to, you know, get a couple sips of the wine um and i remember taking that tour i remember the facility and so every time i drive by robert mondavi um i think about that moment
0: yeah i think depending what when you came to napa you know people have come and experienced it at different times and how things have changed over the years like when i think about when i came i went to rutherford grill and i went to of course mondavi and all these places and then uh Taylor's refresher is there, and then that turned into a got. Obviously, so th- mm-hmm. there's been some changes through the years, but it still has that kind of—I don't know if small town feel is the right w- way to describe it, but that kind of magic about it to me.
1: Oh, I would agree with that very much. I mean, Napa has changed so much in the 17 years that I have lived here, but it it maintains that that we you call it, that small town feel, where I think. It's because it's a we have one main industry, which is wine. And it is the kind of industry where we understand that we we all have to work together, um, that the rising tide lifts all boats. And so it is an incredible community of um, sharing of ideas, tasting together, visiting each other. um, And it, it, it still has maintained that kind of small town vibe.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned growing up in a city atmosphere and in DC, as you just mentioned, I heard you on another podcast a few years ago um, and talking about the cows on the property at Quintessa and how you kind (laughs) of keep your distance because you had grown up in a city. Um, So I kind of wanted to ask you about that too, as far as uh, you know, living around animals and being in nature, and how that transition—obviously, I mean, this has been for many years. So I'm, you know, have your feelings changed at all since then? Or oh you, well,
1: seen? I've always loved the cows, but I—I I will admit, I mean, I—I I visit them, um, you know, daily and or not daily. Every time I take a walk, I go visit them. This year, I've watched all three calves be born. Wow. Um, but I, they are, they're lovely, they're docile, but they are large. And so I feed them, you know, generally through the fence and we'll pet them through the fence. I'll go inside their paddock, um, with Martin Galvan, our vineyard manager who, um, kind of is their, their, their papa, their padron. Um, so yeah, I still, I think I have a little bit of the city girls, um, worry that a big animal is going to knock me over. But I also have, I think, an intense appreciation for how fortunate I am to be able to be connected to the land, to be able to watch the wildlife, to see um, the changes over the course of the season on this property. Um, So at Quintessa, uh, where I'm the winemaker, we have... uh, uh, really diverse ecosystem here. And we have a lake and we run to the Napa River and it's a organic and biodynamically farmed property. And so we have a very rich um, wildlife and very rich diversity. And we put a, a lot of attention into maintaining the insectaries and those more wild and native parts of the estate.
0: Yeah, we're going to get into the property. You mentioned a lot of the features right there and that really interesting story. A couple things first. um, You mentioned you're doing the first harvest. Do you have any memories or stories to share from doing that first harvest? I know different people have different experiences depending where you do it. And of course, the vintage makes a a big difference as well. But do you have any interesting ones from that?
1: Oh, you know, I was... So lucky with my very first experience. Um, I was in Monterey County, so I was really isolated um, and I was living on the property. So I was living at the winery and it was just the most warm and welcoming um, introduction into the wine business. So the assistant winemaker, Kara uh, uh, Hayne at the time, not Kara Morrison, um, was just became an instant friend of mine and really took me under her wing. And the other intern Boyd Morrison um, and the three of yeah. us became instant friends and they kind of introduced me into more wine culture and California culture and winemaking. And, you know, I have to say, and if you caught it, but they, the two of them are married now uh, with two beautiful children and they're both winemakers in oh, Sonoma. And we've remained friends, and so I think that that was an, a very lucky um, and special uh, experience, harvest experience.
0: That's really interesting, and that's great that you had such a great experience being set out on your first kind of uh, you know foray into the business. You mentioned you know having that interest in chemistry, and your teacher kind of facilitating that. Um, where do you, what do you think about winemaking as far as being, and you talked about this kind of a cross section between science and art, because I used to think of it really as an art form mostly. And I never appreciated all the chemistry and all the science that's really involved. It wasn't until listening to Jim Duane on the podcast, (laughs) um, and a few other people where I really Realized I'm like, wow! I think I'm I'm going to have to do a few more chemistry classes and kind of brush up on some of this stuff to be able to understand that the science piece. But you know, where, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, you know, you're right. Jim does a wonderful job of explaining um, the science. I think that the science for me um, personally adds another layer of beauty to making. So I've always been interested in the why in the process. And so for me, understanding or or trying to I don't know that you'll ever fully understand it, but trying to understand the processes that are going on as wine ages, um, the phenolic development adds another layer of beauty to it. As a winemaker, I do think that the you don't have to have a chemistry background to be a winemaker. But I do think it's it allows me to become a better artist, because if I understand the fundamental importance or the action, say, of pH, why it's important, Um, the metabolism of yeast, that actually allows me to become more hands-off, more artistic in my winemaking. So for instance, I don't inoculate with yeast. I use only native yeast. And so you could think that means I'm doing less, I'm not adding anything, but it actually requires a more fundamental understanding of how to promote the native yeast that I do want and discourage the spoilage yeast. So, a better understanding of temperature, of um, yeast metabolism. And, you know, understanding all that science, one makes it, you know, that's kind of, I've always been a geeky kind of person and I like that kind of thing. But it's also what allows me to flex the artistic um, muscles.
0: Yeah, and you've talked about your work with phenolics. Let's discuss that a little bit, kind of from a basic level, and then we can drill down a little bit more for people who are unfamiliar. So, you know, most people know tannins, but let's talk a little about that conversation and how you view it in some of your research.
1: Sure. Yeah. So phenolics is just the, the lar- and tannins are just a large group of um, compounds that have these activities. So tannins are multiple different compounds that have the ability literally to tan leather. And so they have a certain amount of reaction to them. Phenolics are the building blocks of tannins um, and color. So they are of fundamental importance in red wines. So I think, you know, I, As a winemaker, um, it's really, it's interesting. And and, uh, another person mentioned this to me the other day, and it made perfect sense, is that as a winemaker, you're always tasting wine for the future. So we taste a lot of young wine. We taste unfinished wine. We taste blocks. And you're constantly, you're training yourself to taste these wines now for what they're going to be as opposed to say like a wine critic or a sommelier that would taste a finished wine um, and sort of judge the wine for now. And because I'm always tasting for what the wine will be, I really focus on mouthfeel on texture more than anything else because aromas change, but the difference between a good wine and a great wine is texture. So that's why the phenolics are incredibly important in learning how Um, Or You know, it's constant investigation on how to um, promote or understand what the character of a year is. So a good example would be the 2013 vintage um, and versus the 2011 vintage. Um, 2013 is considered this great year. It's a very powerful year. And why is that? That's because it was a year where conditions were such that the berries had two to three seeds per berry. And so as I'm walking through the vineyard right now, we're almost into veraison, and so I'm not tasting any grapes, but I am taking a you know, grape off, um, opening it up with my fingernail and seeing how many um, seeds are per berry, because that gives me an indication of what the character of the vintage is going to be like. So 2013, with two to three seeds per berry seeds are where tannins are mainly. Um, that would tell you that this has the potential to be a very high tannin year. And you had that combined with uh, what we call an Indian summer, so a warm September, October, to allow that really high level of tannin to actually get fully ripe and then extractable. So you can have tannin, but it's not always able to be extracted into um, the wine. And that's what created the character of the 2013 vintage. Um, 2011 is on the opposite side where it was about one seed per berry. Um, so it was a much lower tannin level. And then we also had a cooler year. So we were actually very lucky to have a one seed per berry, a lower tannin year, because that allowed that one seed to get ripe in a cooler year. So these are the kind of things that you, if you understand, or for me, I find it interesting to look at and get a sense of what the vintage is going to be like, and then use that, information, that observational information to react in the winery um, in terms of your pump over regimes, in terms of your maceration times. Um, I don't believe in just having a a recipe um, for what you're going to do in the winery. Uh, Even though we say wine is made in the vineyard or all great wines are made in the vineyard, you actually need to carry that through into the winery. So in a year like 2011 with you know, not that much tannin, you don't need to extract that much. It's going to come out. It's actually not the character of that year. Whereas 2013, you have these easily extractable tannins. And so you actually have to be careful about not over extracting. Um, and so that's, that's how I use the phenolic research and for my day to day, you know, how I can connect that kind of science of phenolics with what I consider the artistry of uh, being a winemaker.
0: That's a really interesting explanation. Talk a little about kind of on the consumer side, so people tasting wines and being able to taste a wine with, let's say, higher tannins, and then tannins be, having that ageability factor. So explaining that to people a little bit.
1: Yeah. You know, this is a really exciting area. I think that this is the new and and for a lot of consumers that I taste with the kind of scary and uncomfortable part that they're not as familiar with. I think the wine industry as a whole, we need to do a better job of letting people know that they're, what they like is okay. I think we do too much um, insider speak in when we're talking about wine and we make people feel like they are they don't know what they're talking about or they're uncomfortable, they're afraid to say their opinions. Everyone has a personal taste. And so teaching people and talking about tannins and how they interact with your mouth, um, how you react to them, that's going to, you know, create this whole language to talk about texture because we're just using language to approximate a feeling, right? And so when you talk about a wine being supple or silky or dusty, what does that actually mean? Um, the best way to talk about that with people and to teach them is to taste wines together and then to understand how that texture, how that, what we call tannin quality, um, how that will change and develop over time. So I, I believe that uh, a wine with a good tannin quality, a good texture that will remain a quality wine over the course of its aging. Um, And so that will tell you kind of how much, Sort of learn to identify these textures, um, the volume of tannin, how how it's interacting, the age of the wine, and kind of predict how that's going to age, and at what point that's going to be the perfect time for you personally to drink it.
0: Yeah, and you've talked in the past about, and I don't, I don't. You can clarify this because I don't <laughs> want to, uh, you know, put words in your mouth here. But something about. You know, people like to be kind of told tasting notes and they like to be told, you know, what the wine tastes like. And then so for me personally, learning to taste, it is really helpful. And that kind of rang true to where, you know, I like to read the notes and I like to get, you know, feedback and look at different websites and things. And whether it's a critic or from the wine uh, winery themselves, if they have you know, notes and even better if they put down all types of chemistry, you know, figures and facts, because that helps me kind of learn about, you know, what I'm what I'm tasting and and get a better feel for things. So, you know, sometimes when people are tasting wine for the first time, it can be really intimidating. But once they learn, you know, if you're tasting wine and reading, okay, there's blackberry notes or dark fruits or graphite, whatever the notes are, sometimes it's easier to pick them up after you've kind of read it. And then, You know, maybe going forward, you might not agree with everything or maybe you'll pick up some other notes that you personally find. But what do you think is the best way for people to like for wineries and winemakers to connect with consumers on that piece? I guess that's more of like a business of wine question.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's what you said is exactly true. Um, Having come out of winemaker school at UC Davis and we used a very technical tasting Um, Way And if I'm tasting in in my tasting group, actually Jim's in my tasting group, the way we taste is we taste silently. And then Mm -hmm. like you're a winemaker, you don't want someone to tell you what the wine tastes like before you taste it. Right. And so it took me a while um, of sharing my wines, of going out on the road to realize, and actually someone told me this, it's like, just tell us what it tastes like, Um, which is a very (laughs) different way. Like if I'm tasting with a wine critic, it would be incredibly rude for me to tell them what the wine tastes like
0: i'm sure yeah be <laughs> quiet
1: let them taste um let them come up with their own opinion but having this conversation and sort of sharing my my thoughts on the wine um as you know has taught me a different way to talk about it also you know as a winemaker when i'm writing my own personal notes they might not make sense to anyone else they're kind of a laundry list of things that i'm you know uh things that I'm noticing and their intensity. And so in terms of my winemaker tasting notes, those published notes, and what I want to share, I actually need to translate my own internal note into something that is understandable to someone else. I've actually started, uh, I did a, I've gotten into tea and I've started to notice and, and learn from tea producers. And I'm trying to use that in how I talk about wine or how I write about the wine because one thing I you know, initially used to do is, is be very technical, very um, non-emotional in and, and not lyrical at all in my winemaker tasting notes and how I was talking about the wine, like saying black fruit, blackberry, cassis, medium plus, tannin. Um, and I realized the tea notes, they talk more about how the tea makes you feel or what it should remind you of. And so I've tried to kind of create this hybrid, um, which because I think that wine does have an emotional response and is what's so special about wine is how it evokes memories, how it you know, translates the soul of an estate into a bottle of wine and how it's going to speak to that. And so try and create tasting notes and, and talk about the wine um more like that is the way that it makes me feel. Um, and so for Quintessa in that way, I've started calling every vintage, coming up with like a name um, for every vintage or a, a feeling for every vintage. And I, I really like that kind of idea. So the 2017 vintage that we've, um, we're releasing right now, I've called it an eloquent year. And it's because it, it's something that the, the wine, even though I made it, these wines are alive and they're going to tell me something themselves. And this is a vintage that I found has been surprising to me. And every time I've tasted it, it's changed. And I feel like it has a lot to say. And so I had to come up with one word and that's what I chose.
0: Wow. That's, uh, that's, that's great. We're going to link the um, website here in the show notes so people can purchase some wines. And um, we're going to get into that a little bit more. But the last thing before we do get into that is there's so many properties you worked at. And as you mentioned, Oregon, New Zealand, all over the place, um, but the one I am the most interested in is Rudd, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And so maybe you could, uh, you know, elaborate a little bit on that. And a lot of people kind of know the story there. And maybe they've been to a press restaurant or um, maybe they've uh, just driven by the property or something like that. But there's there's a lot of history there and they make some amazing wines. They don't make that many wines, though, only <laughs> a few, right? Yeah. So.
1: Yeah. So Rudd is this beautiful estate in Oakville. It's on the Eastern side. So along the Silverado trail um, and Oakville crossroad. And um, I've always been drawn to these estate driven wines to a property that has a lot to say. And so I actually worked at Rudd a couple of, I had sort of two stints at Rudd. One was as a cellar intern. So when I first moved to California, I worked in the cellar there and it was, um, such a wonderful experience. I got, at the time, they were also doing the Edge Hill wine. So I got introduced to these, what we call mixed blacks. So these like Zinfandel, Petite Syrah, Carignan type wines with the Edgehill program. And then the um, Oakville Estate. Uh, Rudd has a very distinctive um, soil type. It's this Oakville red. And it's, um, uh, you know, it, it's this kind of minerally dark, um, kind of structured uh, wine, like wines from this type of soil. And it was really fun to learn how and watch how the winemaker um, was utilizing different techniques to uh, work with that property. And then I came back to Rudd um, after working a little bit at Staglin, which is in Rutherford on the Western side. So came back to Rudd uh, for a couple of years and was the assistant winemaker there. And so really Rudd for me is like, My university, Um, I learned so much about winemaking from it. And it's a special place in my heart, particularly that estate-driven focus, the idea of quality above anything else. And um, conversely, also, or, you know, in addition to that, the Sauvignon Blancs. And so I've used a lot of what I've learned at Rudd from about native yeast fermentations, barrel fermentation, Um, paying attention to texture, extraction, um, blending, and um, both for the whites and the reds. Uh, And I think about that a lot here at Quintessa. A different property, different wine, but um, similar philosophy.
0: Yeah, and that leads into a conversation here about Quintessa. So the, the Bordeaux blend... The single wine produced, red wine, and then the illumination, Sauve Blanc. Let's get into the red wine first. And you talked about kind of the different name that you come up with each year. Um, But let's get into the property itself, uh, 160 acres planted, (laughs) cabs. Well, actually, we're doing
1: a little bit of renewal. So we have 130 acres right now. Okay. Um, And the property itself is actually 280 acres. So there is a lot of... Uh, this estate that is not just vineyard. Um, Yeah, this is a, Quintessa is incredible. It's unique. We're on the eastern side. So we run along Silverado Trail and the property runs all the way to the Napa River. Um, It's got hillsides on it. So we're valley floor, but with hills, um, which allows for uh, exposure to all points of the compass. So we have lots of different aspects. We have hillsides. And then what's most cool about this property, um, for lack of a better word, is the diversity of the soils. So you have one estate farmed with one philosophy with multiple different um, soil types. And I think that's the power and and the um, special character of Quintessa is the diversity. It's kind of like a microcosm of all of Napa Valley um, geologically in one place.
0: Yeah, and that diversity really contributes to the the wine and obviously how it tastes and like you said, the mouthfeel and getting all those nuances. Talk a little about how you go about the blending for any given year. So I'm seeing here in 2017, um, you, know, you have the standard Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, a mm-hmm. little bit of Petit Verdot, but you also have the Carmenere in there, um, which yeah. kind of caught my eye how do you mm-hmm. think about how do you think about blending and how do you think about achieving what you're going out for in that Bordeaux blend style?
1: Yeah. So there we have five, um, Bordeaux or so five red varieties, five of the six Bordeaux varieties planted on this property. Um, there's Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, Petit Verdot, and Carminier. Um, this is the only property I've ever worked with Carmenier on, and it has been a revelation. It's very interesting. Um, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon is—we have it on different soil types. It really expresses itself differently, um, but it is that you know, dark fruit backbone, full tannin. Cabernet Franc is a little bit more red fruit, a little bit more rustic, and a bit of a what we I would call a fresh. Character, so like a little bit more edgy, more freshness, more high acidity. Merlot is plush. Um, Petit Verdot is dried floral spice exotic. And then Carminier is really interesting to me. So we have two blocks of Carminier. Like I said, I had never worked with it before. It is a little bit like um, Merlot in that its tannin can actually be fairly plush but it also has a green character to it. So when it's great, it's beautiful. It's this um, tobacco barn, resinous, um, herbal note. When it's a shorter season and it doesn't get ripe, so it actually needs a fairly long season, it can be more like a chimichanga, like a jalapeno, and that's not as good of a Mm. green character. So it's sort of, it's, it's a, it's a nod to the Chilean heritage of the family. They actually sourced and brought in the carmineer um, clonal wood from properties that they uh, had planted or, or were owning in Chile. And then it's, but in the blend it's serving this purpose of adding complexity, spice, um, a, a new kind of character. In it, and it's very special. So i love that there is in all of the quintessa vintages, this, it's like resinous tobacco barn, so it's not like cut tobacco. If anyone here has, you know, I've been to a tobacco barn, lived like Virginia, Connecticut, Kentucky, there's this really um, particular character. It's kind of like a cigar leaf wrapper, and it's a little bit more sandalwood esque.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I'm seeing here on the notes from the website: the savory characteristics, tar, tobacco giving it structure um but you know, balanced by the those silky the silky smooth mouthfeel and those fruits where whenever i taste quintessa wine it's really to me it's just so silky and approachable where and you're getting all those fruit flavors with none of the kind of harshness i guess i mean it was one of the first wines i actually tasted where i was like whoa this is a really you know, an amazing, uh, Cabernet I actually had not tasted anything like it before that. Um, I actually had it first time at, at one of the Hillstone locations. I forget uh, mm-hmm. which ones, but you know, it's, it's on the menu there. People can find it and it, it's one of the higher price wines there, but, um, I think it was a birthday or something and we, we treated and, it was, and that was, uh, it was an amazing experience. And from there it was down the rabbit hole, uh, tasting so many other (laughs) things but let's talk about rutherford dust um some people know this term and it's been talked about you talked about the different soil types which adds to the uniqueness of the wine what should people know about rutherford dust and why is it so unique and so special
1: yeah you know rutherford is this historic heart of the napa valley and i think rutherford and oakville are known as the um the you know sort of classic and um best places to grow these bordeaux varieties in napa valley Uh, oakville tends to be more opulent rutherford has more structure the the rutherford dust thing is funny um you know i'll even use the term sometimes and for me it can be literal like there's dustiness Mm -hmm. um feeling of dustiness it i think that um all of napa valley and all of these appellations we're a very uh complicated geologic um formation. So we have the two mountain ranges. Um, our sub-AVAs span though across the eastern hills, the western hills, and the valley floor. And so there can be a lot of difference. And I actually think sometimes even more difference between the east and the west of Rutherford than there is between, say, you know, St. Helena and um Oakville. Uh, Here at Quintessa, like I said, we have these hills and we have this diversity. Most of our property is volcanic origin, so origin from the Vaca range that we nestle up against the foot of. The far eastern part of our property has white soils, um, like those found on parts of Howell Mountain and Pritchard Hill, so that's a volcanic ash we have these central hills and these western hills that have a mix of volcanic and um, alluvial. So we see um, quartz and volcanic um, character, but also these gravels and these cobbles and a little bit more clay. So this is this what I would call mountain fruit tannin. Um, and you know when you taste those mountain wines, they have a tighter core. Um, they have a different structure to their tannin and the clay though allows for a little bit of um, breadth to them. And then we have along the Napa river, this alluvial fan, this clay loam. And I think that this is the part of the Quintessa property. That's more like the Rutherford dust, what people think of as Rutherford. And this is a deeper clay loam. And so it creates this power and this plushness um, to the wine. And a little bit more of a, it's not incredibly long finished. The, actually the volcanic soils, basically that white soil creates this incredibly long finish. In um, the Quintessa wines, the um, rather for dusty part of the property creates the power and the density and the plushness. Um, and then the, a little bit of a dusty feeling. So this yeah. is, yeah, I mean, it's like putting all these things together creates these layers and creates a wine that has um, kind of pleasure young and then aging in it. And it, it adds you know whole level of complexity to the blending. I mean, I'll usually have, I have 26 different blocks on the property, but I will make subsections of picking um, depending on soil type and ripeness. So for instance, in 2019, I think I had 85 separate sections of the vineyard. And then once it comes into the winery, I keep... Um, the press wine and the free run separate, and sometimes you do different tanks on the same lot, and I'll have between 100 and 150 lots to work with um, to create the quintessa blend that's in the bottle.
0: Wow! And how about the different clones or rootstocks or anything of that nature contributing to you know the nuance or the layering there? I know the property is pretty vast, but.
1: Yeah. So we have um, different rootstocks, different clones um, planted in different soil types. So what I have found, and of course, rootstock is important. Um, you really want to match the rootstock to the soil to kind of either compensate for um, you know dry tendencies. You want to match work that um, well. And then clones as well. I'd like having a diversity of that. What I have found, though, over time is that The clonal differences um, seem to be more more apparent when the vines are young. Mm -hmm. Once the vines are mature, what they're really showing is their soil difference. And so I firmly believe that we need to have older vines in order to really show um, and express the terroir. For For the vines to really express where they're from, they need to be mature. And so that's one of the things that we are um, working on more than ever at Montessa is maintaining this vine age. So we have our original plantings are 30 years old, um, which traditionally in Napa is when you replant. Um, and we're sort of changing our paradigm of thinking and thinking about resiliency in the plants and longevity. And so, what can we do um, as farmers in our pruning and our farming and our Um, trellising techniques to create even more um, age in these vines. So we should be able to get to 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. Um, They do that in the old world. And if you want to be a, we want to be a classic wine estate. That's what our sort of style is. And, you know, a classic estate, that's about consistency and longevity. And so vine age is so important. And I think me, like a lot of winemakers, we all, you know, if you follow our Instagram pages, you'll see a lot of pictures of old vines. Like we all love it. There's something, there's something incredibly evocative about an old vine. It, you see the gnarly twists of the trunk, um, and it's a moss growing on the trunk, and it kind of just tells you. You think back, like, wow, if this was planted, um, you know, in in the turn of the century, what was happening then? What were people thinking? And, 1960. I used to work with some, or I've actually still do work with some um, vines that were planted during Prohibition. And so to think about, like, how crazy is that? Who was planting vineyards during Prohibition? What were they thinking? Um, And all the kind of stories they must these vines have to tell.
0: Yeah, those are those are some really interesting stories to think about. About not just, you know, what were the grapes doing in any given vintage and being tended to by the, uh, the vineyard manager and then the winemaker and such a hands-on process, but even going that second layer deep and, you know, going back for so many years. I know the oldest vineyards I've heard are over 130 years, I think. Is that about right? Or at, for at least in California. California?
1: Yeah, that is right. Actually, so one of our Carmenier blocks on this property is sourced from the Nayan Vineyard in Chile. And Chile never got phylloxera because of, like, they're bordered by the sea and then by the Andes, they're kind of isolated. So this Carmenier is, I think, that it was sourced from, was over 150 years old vineyard. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, think about that. as incredible. Um, So, yeah, I'm really loving these old vines, I sort of fascinate with this kind of heritage um, vineyards, these mixed blacks that I got introduced to uh, working at Rudd with the Edgeshell Project. So these kind of forgotten, maybe a little less um, sexy or fine varieties, but that really speak to the heritage of California, um, these older vineyards, and um, can make these beautiful wines that have a different texture, different character than the Bordeaux blends, than Quintessa, but um, have a lot to say as well.
0: Yeah, there's some new up and coming winemakers working with varieties in that nature and seeking out uh, vineyards all over California. And there's some really interesting projects and in, and uh, wines coming that coming up, you know, lately that people could definitely seek out. Um, And there's a lot of experimentation and, you know, also people seeking out that lower price point. um, And as things change going forward, let's talk a little about, I'm just going to kind of group this all in one discussion, but uh, Mm -hmm. biodynamics, you know, biodynamic farming, um, organics, regenerative farming. Um, you know, barn owl boxes in the vineyard. Doing, <laughs> you know, I, I'll just—I think you kind of get—you catch where the I'm whole going. Philosophy,
1: sure. Yeah. What's your uh,
0: What's your thoughts there, and um, and also, you know, what things do you do in in the vineyard or in the uh, in the cellar in that kind of uh, in that way?
1: So Quintessa was established as an organic vineyard. This was a a piece of land that had never been farmed before, and um, our founders, Augustine and Valeria Huneus. Valeria designed the vineyard and had the vision back in 1989 that she would um, establish this vineyard, maintain this vineyard, farm it organically, and with a very um, with a, a philosophy of being a good steward of the land. Didn't want to use synthetic chemicals. So organic farming is basically what we would call conventional farming um, with uh, replacing the synthetic chemicals with more n- natural chemicals. So you don't have the herbicides, you don't have the petroleum products, um, but you are sort of interacting with your soil, I think, in a more transactive way, um, you know, adding your compounds or you know, sort of managing your pests. Biodynamics is a different um, beast altogether because it's a philosophy. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a philosophy um, that thinks that there's this um, objective in intellectually comprehensible spiritual world that is exists in everything. So the farm itself is an organism. It has its own spirit and is interacting with the animals on the property, with the plants on the property. They're interacting with the earth, with the farm, with the cosmos, and with the people that are on the property as well. Um, So it's practically, though, just a sort of framework that you use to um, think about all of the actions that you do and, and your interaction with the property, with the estate. And so You know, fundamentally, farming is extractive. We are extracting um, energy from the ground to make these grapes, and then I'm taking them to make wine. I'm not putting them back in. So biodynamics asks you to think about how are you going to counter that? How are you going to create life and energy and healthier soils um, in your process? And, And mainly that's through compost. So we work a lot with the compost, creating a more healthy microbiome. You know, i found that over the last couple of years, people understand it better. Um, You know, there's sort of these like weird practices that kind of make no sense if you take them on their own, where you're like burying cow manure in a cow horn, burying it underground and then spraying it. That sort of or silica, that kind of sounds cuckoo. Right. But if you think about it, I explain it this way. Right. This is okay, So um, cows have four stomachs. They turn cellulose, they turn grass into energy. They have a really powerful gut microbiome. And so that's what the cow manure is. These, this gut microbiome of the cow burying it in a cow horn. Um, you know, you're doing it because in biodynamics, this understanding of, or this belief in, um, The power of a cow horn to focus these energies but you can just ignore that if you want and say that this is a porous uh um, container and then you bury it underground to have a stable temperature and humidity and the cow manure basically it ferments and it changes so when we dig it back up it doesn't smell like cow manure it's this rich dark compound with no smell so we mix it with water so it's very very small amounts just a couple like tablespoons, you know, for acres and spray it on the ground. These aren't sprayed on the grapes, it's sprayed on the ground. So this is like taking probiotics for the vineyard. So you are doing all this not to add that compound. It's not this compost that you're adding nitrogen or um, into the soil. What you're doing is you're creating a more healthy microbiome, which will then create more fertility in the soil, and so I think now in, in recent years more people are paying attention to their own gut microbiome and it makes more sense. Right? Does that make sense to you?
0: Yeah, that's really yeah. it does make sense in separating out, as you mentioned, kind of biodynamic from organics, even though they're closely related, it's very mm-hmm. different. Um, but there's a lot of nuance here in that conversation. So you know, that story with the soil it does it does ring true. So sometimes having examples like that can help people yeah. kind of understand things.
1: Um, and you know, if I come from a science background, um, I I like I said I like to understand the why and how it how things work. Um, having done a lot of chemistry and, and physics, I makes me believe that there are forces that we might not be able to measure right now, but do have an effect, these kind of micro forces. And so I don't find it um, contradictory to be someone who believes in modern science and also someone who believes in biodynamics. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Let's get into just briefly the Sauvignon Blanc, the illumination. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, how that looks for for you to be able to produce that, and I believe you mentioned in the past that you purchased some of that fruit as well, so you've been able to expand the program a bit. but
1: that's correct. yeah, so illumination is the white wine from Quintessa. Um, it started as this um, investigation into what would be that right partner for Quintessa. And it, the um, family was always interested in Sauvignon Blanc. Um, I think Sauvignon Blanc is one of the great varieties of the world. I think it has the ability to be transparent to its terroir. You can make wonderful Sauvignon Blanc in many different styles. You have New Zealand, you have Fleur, you have Bordeaux. Um, and so they started by planting just a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc Mousquet, actually, on the Quintessa property. And so that was the start of the illumination Um, wine was this Just Estate. So that was in 2006 was the first vintage. And it was just served at the family home and, you know, winemaker dinners or, um, you know, just a splash to taste guests to the winery. And people loved it. And so we thought hard about how we could expand this program. Um, And it wouldn't, it was impossible to do it just at the estate and to also to be that partner to Quintessa, it has to have those layers of complexity. And so we found these grower partners in um, Southern Napa Valley and in the Bennett Valley area of Sonoma. So this is a cross Appalachian line. Um, So those are cooler areas of uh, Napa and Sonoma. So cooler regions to be growing Sauvignon in, So it maintains its acidity, its minerality um, I like the Mousquet clone. So now we know it's a clone. We used to think it was maybe a different variety or selection. So the Sauvignon Blanc component of illumination is about half Sauvignon Blanc and half Sauvignon Mousquet. And then I'm also working with some Semillon um, to create more texture, more depth. Um, and then inside the winery, so I have the different varieties, the different vineyards. And those vineyards, um, we don't own them, but we have – uh, maintained um, long term contracts with them and their grower partners. So they're farming specifically for us. And then in the winery, I'm using different fermentation vessels to kind of accentuate the different character and add um, more layers to illumination so that it can be that partner to Quintessa. Um, I'm, I also personally really love the wine. I drink a lot of it. Um, I find that it's kind of flexible. Uh, in in terms of being able to be had as like a cocktail wine so just by the glass while i'm cooking with multiple different foods i think that's because it's barrel fermented with semillon so it has texture it has breath it has no malolactic fermentation so it also and it's sauvignon blanc so it maintains a really high acidity so it both has a feeling of roundness and a presence in my mouth but also high acidity to create this mouth watering character to it um
0: That sounds really delicious. People (laughs) definitely check that out if they've had the red wine, but maybe they haven't heard of the uh, Illumination brand um, and that unique style, as you just explained. There's a lot of people who may not like Sauvignon Blanc, or they think they don't like it until they find something like what you just described with a little more backbone and the the barrel aging and the Semillon. I mean, that's where there's so much nuance that comes in and um, hopefully this podcast will be able to guide people a little more To uh, Sometimes it's really difficult to shop for wine, <laughs> whether you're going on the label or whether you're, you know, you can look at the, the tasting notes and things online, but that that really helps give um, a lot more explanation there. So thanks for that. The last thing here to close things out is your label post and vine, um, which I'm on the website here. It's a beautiful website. You have uh, a picture of the vineyard with the mountains in the background mm-hmm. And um, most of the wines here are sold out, but I can see there is one for purchase available. So why don't you talk a little about that project?
1: Sure. Yeah. So this Post and Vine is a little project I started in 2012 with my friend, Erica, who works at Rudd. So we met um, working at Rudd together. And it's, you know, it's it's this... um, Project that was designed as a little bit of a creative outlet to work with different grape varieties and also specifically to work with those um, non Bordeaux, so these California heritage vineyards, these kind of lesser known uh, varieties, lesser known regions, lesser known vineyards that I think have an incredible story to tell. And so I'm working with a vineyard in Mendocino called Testa Vineyard that was planted in 1912. So established wow. in 1912 and it's a field blend. So it's Zinfandel, Carignan, Petit Sirah, Grenache, And, um, you know, I, with every vineyard, with Contessa, with the Testa Vineyard, with Illumination, I want to, I have a similar philosophy of winemaking, um, but I also, but that philosophy requires that I listen. So the wines are going to be very different, but, you know, I am I guess I'm the, you know, connecting character to them all. And so this is a wine that's more, um, uh, you know, the fruits difference, a little bit more rustic. It's speaking of that terroir. And like you said earlier, you know, there, it's a lot lower priced. And so I want to make a great wine that is... Um, able to be aged, but you can drink it young, but it's also at a price point that you shouldn't hesitate to open it on a Wednesday night to have with your pizza because you should be having good wine all the time. Um, and shouldn't have to compromise and you just need to learn to, to sort of um, look in different regions to provide different things.
0: Yeah. The notes on this one are, sounds so delicious. Wild strawberry, blackberry, pomegranate blood orange peel hints of clove cardamom kind of goes on from there um as you mentioned the petite sirah, carignan zinfandel and grenache so for someone who wants to seek out kind of that style and um something at a little lower cost but still providing that excellent value like you said you can open it on a on a tuesday night having some pizza or something like that um okay. instead as an alternative to i don't know a grocery store wine or uh or some beer or something else, I guess. Yeah. There's this market (laughs) coming. (laughs) There's this market coming where I, where I think that, you know, now we do have wines at a price point, whether it's 20, 30, $40 where people can enjoy wine on kind of a more weekday basis, or it doesn't have to be a special occasion, but, but it's a product that's still handmade. Right. And it's, you know, you take so much care um, and thoughtfulness and, and, and wine, of course, people know is a living, is a living being and that, um, you know, it's, it's not supposed to be a commodity that it's like, kind of like McDonald's, you know, wine isn't supposed to taste the same every year. And it's not supposed to be that type of wine that that's commercialized that you would buy maybe at a grocery store or somewhere else. But you know, you're still getting a product that's, that's craft, that's handcrafted, I guess.
1: That's beautifully said. Wine has that special ability to to translate where it's from. Um, and that should be possible at, at every price point.
0: Yeah. And so the other one here is the Rosé of Carignan. Yeah. Touch a little on that because <laughs> Rosé has been so popular, um, it, you know, whether it's social media like Instagram or whether it's just in pop culture, but Yeah, maybe you could touch a little first on just a a couple different ways rosé is made, and then you know there's some nuance there. um, Yeah, people who don't know, and then go into this one, which looks rosé is
1: really having a moment, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Yeah, and rosé maybe in a way can be kind of it it difficult to parse out because um, it can be made in many different ways and in many different styles. So you can have these very very light rosés that are almost look white. And then you can have rosés that are darker. It can be made in different ways. So um, the way I make my rosé is um, a whole cluster press. So it's kind of a, uh, it's, I am intending to make rosé. It's the only product that I'm making from these grapes. So the skin contact is very, very minimal. And that's what creates the rosé color versus a a red carry down. My rosé, the rosé of carry down is actually fairly dark. And that is direct to press. That is like no skin contact. That is just carignan showing its character, old vine carignan, giving you um, color right away. Then you can have a rosé that's made with saigné. So that's a bleed. So that's you've crushed the grapes, you put them into a tank, and then you literally open up a valve or you bleed out the juice. So before fermentation, you bled it out and that can give you, um, you're only getting part of the character of those grapes. So you can make a red wine from the what's left in the tank or what remains, and you've just bled out some of the juice. Um, And so that's a Saniye rosé. And then some people make rosés by mixing red and white grapes together, or red and white grape wines together, um, which I've never done, which is really interesting. That's um, how they make a rosé champagne, um, for instance. And so like I said, there's this whole spectrum of rosé and, it's I think one of the most fun sort of categories to investigate and to start to learn about um you know the different styles. They're all sort of fun. Is this the kind of rose that I have? Like a friend of mine, um Belong uh wine company makes this rose they call chasing sunset, and it is just the palest color. So tiniest, tiniest blush. And it is so wonderful like to have at sunset after a hike. Um, In your hot tub, it's just crushable. Um, Another one is Paper Plains, which makes a rosé of um, Pinot Noir. So more Pinot Noir character, more, I think, very floral, delicate. Um, And that's, you know, I'll I'll sort of put that with um, kind of my appetizers. I actually think it's a beautiful pairing as well with um, summertime dessert. So like not a chocolate dessert, but like shortbread and fresh strawberries, um, with a Pinot of Rosé. And then for Postman Vine uh, Rosé of Carignan, it's a little bit darker. Um, it has that kind of, um, like a watermelon rind, um, fresh strawberry, and it's the very distinctive saline, sort of mineral finish on it. Um, and I'm just really enjoying, I've been I kind of been drinking a lot. I'm, I'm like, getting high on my own supply, I guess. Um, and I have been putting um, that with um, sort of summer grills and spicier foods as well. Um, so that's been a lot of fun.
0: Well, that's great. People can go check this out and purchase a bottle. The notes on here, really delicious sounding, fresh strawberries, rose water, watermelon rind, um, flavors of melon, white peach goes on from there. So, it's <laughs> uh, you know, the weather is still really hot out. Still hot enough to enjoy your rosé here for another (laughs) couple months. You know, day-to-day basis, your mileage may vary. But lastly, let's just have some fun. You just mentioned drinking the rosé. What have you been drinking lately? Any food and wine pairings that you've been having fun with or anything like that during these hot uh, summer months?
1: Yeah, you know, I have been eating at home a lot more than usual. Restaurants are not quite fully open in Napa. Yeah. And um, and so I have been raiding my cellar. And so I had this weekend, the most incredible, like I've been taking this as like an opportunity to just open great wine. So I had a um, steak, a beautiful uh, ribeye, and I opened up a super Tuscan. So Gratamaco. Um, so a Cabernet Sauvignon from the Mediterranean or so the, the temperate side of um, Tuscany. And that was incredible. And then I also followed that up. So yes, it was only me and my husband, but we had two bottles of wine with um, a wine I had made from Napa in a very hedonistic style, the mica. And so it was kind of fun to see uh Cabernet Sauvignon in those two different, like one much more mineral structured and the other very, very sexy. Um, and to pair that with just the classic pairing of a a beautiful steak on the grill with a couple of uh, vegetable sides. So that was sort really my, my best, most recent pairing.
0: That sounds really good. That gives people some ideas and maybe some inspiration to uh, try something new out. And we're going to put these links here, as mentioned already a couple times in the show notes. People should go check it out and go buy some wine and uh, maybe even revisit the podcast while you're sipping on some of this great wine. Rebecca, really appreciate you coming on.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, it's been my pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcastgmail.com. At As a reminder, All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.